Welcome to the Wellcore Supplies CAODC podcast for February 2020. I'm John Baco. Thank you very much for joining us again this month. We are already near the end of February. And holy smokes, if you thought 2019 was a wild ride in the Canadian oil and gas industry, it seems like 2020 is going to be just as crazy. Um, we're carrying over to all of the market access issues we experienced in 19. We're now seeing rail blockades across the country in response to the coastal gas link pipeline project, which if you are not familiar with it, is the uh, TC Energy project. They're the proponent, formerly uh, TransCanada. And they are building a pipeline from just west of Dawson Creek in northeastern BC to Kitimat, where the new LNG Canada facility will be built. And of course, this pipeline will supply all of the feedstock. LNG Canada is expected to be shipping product in 2025, so the pipeline needs to get in the ground well ahead of time, but at this point, um, things are quite stalled, which is interesting because despite 20 of 20 First Nations along the pipeline route being signed on in support of the project, there is a divide in the Wet'suwet'en First Nation between the elected chief and council and some and make that point clear, some, not all, of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And so, as a result, because there is a a small faction of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation opposed to the project, uh, the environmental movement has, has taken that and used it to create a perception among some Canadians that First Nation rights are not being respected. And, of course, those who believe that are acting out in support of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and uh, protesting. But in doing so, they're blocking both cargo trains and passenger trains, which has disrupted not only the transportation of goods and people across the country, but it's also resulted in temporary, at least, loss of jobs. So we've seen via rail, for instance, post yesterday that they are temporarily laying off 1,000 employees and I've heard even counts of up to 1,600 people that have lost their jobs because of these rail blockades. So, you know, it's a real disruption. It doesn't need to be that way. I mean, we're only talking about building infrastructure that gets built around the world every day. It makes you scratch your head. I was on Twitter the other day and saw what I thought was a particularly appropriate quote from Brad Tennant. Uh, His handle is at Brad K. Tennant. Um, And the quote was, We are in the midst of a national crisis because 20 out of 20 First Nations affected by Coastal Link and 14 out of 14 First Nations affected by Tech, so the, um, the Tech Frontier Project, support these projects. But parties that consider themselves progressive do not. This seems like it's out of an Orwell novel. And, you know, it it does seem that way. As difficult as these disruptions may be for people, we can only hope that they're causing the average person who may not be as familiar with the industry or all of the protests and all of the politics involved with pipelines and the environment and the environmental movement 
over the past few years. We, we can only hope that this encourages them to take a closer look into what's really going on. Uh, because it feels like a, a lot of people on the fence may not really believe the extent to which industry opponents are influencing what comes across as genuine environmental activism. Well, I mean, I guess that's even debatable because more and more it's not even coming across as genuine. I mean, it's really starting to get uh, to, to come across as being highly organized, which it is in many instances. So Vivian Krauss, actually, who has done a lot of excellent work uncovering the funding and the organizers behind a lot of these protests, had a really good tweet today as well, which, in fact, was an actual job posting for the position of, quote-unquote, senior oil and gas campaigner. And I'll read a little bit of this job description for you uh, that was posted by the group Stand.Earth. So here we go. This is the job posting for senior oil and gas campaigner. Stand.Earth is seeking a passionate and experienced campaigner to develop and implement strategies to raise awareness and build power to stop the expansion of the oil and gas sector. Goes on to say that uh, the International Panel on Climate Change described the terrifying impacts of even a 1.5 degree Celsius rise in global temperatures. Um, talks about the authors of the report reminding us that a societal transformation of this scale is possible within the laws of chemistry and physics, but will require unprecedented changes before 2030. Okay, the next uh, paragraph in this job posting reads, To this end, Stan's Canadian climate and energy campaigns have focused on raising the ambition of climate policy and stopping new tar sands projects like the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the Tech Frontier Mine. In the coming months, we will expand the scope of our work to include working to stop the growth of fracking and LNG in British Columbia. We encourage applicants to apply by February 21, 2020. This position is open until filled. Reporting to the Canadian Oil and Gas Program's manager, this position is responsible for aiding in developing and implementing our Canadian oil and gas campaign strategy, supporting issue research, conducting government relations, communicating through traditional and digital channels with key audiences, coordinating with allies, and executing public actions. This is a full-time position with excellent benefits. Salary is commensurate with experience and adjusted based on location, but will likely be within the range of $70,000 to $85,000 Canadian. So this is a position, a paid position, with one of the uh, tasks being executing public actions. So this is what's happening. People, you know, they wonder or they hesitate to believe that these protesters are paid. And for sure, many of them aren't. For sure, you know, they're doing it because they believe in the cause. But the fact is that many of them are paid. And it seems to me that they're being paid quite well. So, you know, when you, when you get back to, to Brad's quote there about things seeming like they're out of an Orwell novel, it's hard not to agree with them, in, in, uh, in my estimation. Anyway, we've got a great show for you this month. Um, our guest is Mr. Grant Strim, 
chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. And Proton is a Calgary-based company with a new process for extracting hydrogen. Hydrogen is an exciting option when we're talking about clean energy because hydrocarbons are still needed. So for those of us in the oil and gas industry, especially in the drilling and well servicing industry, that's good news because we're still going to need to access oil and gas. Um, but this uh, company, uh, Proton and Grant, have developed a way to uh, extract the hydrogen from the hydrocarbons. And of course, when hydrogen is burned as an energy source, the only emissions are pure water. So we've got a great conversation with Grant coming up. He gives us some insight into the potential for hydrogen as a source of clean energy and what that might mean for Canadian oil and gas. But first, we'll get into our industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by CAODC Rig Data, the most accurate and timely source of Canadian rig data. For information on how to access CAODC Rig Data, check out our membership options at caodc.ca. And actually, we've just added a few new reports to our Associate Plus data offering, which include uh, market share by drilling rig contractor. So if you're an existing Associate Plus member, be sure to click on the report and uh, take a look in there. And we're going to be updating that periodically through the year as we get feedback from our Associate Plus members into uh, what they might like to see. All right, so we've averaged uh, 265 active rigs in the month of January to begin the year, uh, up from 220 in January of 2019. That translates to about 7,875 more jobs this year, which is great news. Um, and as a matter of fact, I've seen several of our members advertising for rig hands on social media, which means rigs are firing and uh, jobs are being created, so excellent. Um, our drilling operating days count was up by 817 year over year for a total of 6,812 compared to 5,995 in 2019. Our registered drilling rig count is at 515, and so far this year we've only had three drilling rig delists. On the service rig side, we had um, 95,331 operating hours from 655 active rigs. That works out to 146 hours per active rig. In uh, contrast, in January of 2019, we had 98,573 hours from 688 active rigs for an average of 143 hours per active rig. So you can see there, we uh, were very close in terms of um, actual operating hours, down only around 3,000 or so, but we were down uh, close to 30 or just over 30 active rigs as well this year. So uh, the service rig count, the current service rig count right now, registered service rig count is at 797 and we've had nine service rig delists this year to date. So all in all, it's been a good start uh, to Q1 and uh, I'm sure like all of you, uh, all of us here at the Weldcore Supply CAODC podcast are hoping we can have a solid Q1 uh, for the next uh, month and get uh, really set the stage for a great year. So once again, our industry update was brought to you by CAODC Rig Data, the most accurate and timely source of Canadian rig data. For information on how to access CAODC Rig Data, 
check out our website at caodc.ca. And this segment actually is typically sponsored by one of our members, so if you're interested in sponsoring the CAODC uh, industry update on the Weldcore Supplies CAODC podcast, uh, just drop us a note to communications at caodc.ca, and we'll get you set up. Okay, up next is our interview with Proton Technologies Chairman and CEO Grant Strem. So stay tuned. Wealthcore is proud to support those who are working hard to keep our country running. Proud to be a Canadian-owned welding filler metal supply company in a country that has the highest environmental and human rights standards in the world. Wealthcore supports ethical oil. Wealthcore supports the Canadian oil and gas sector. The world needs ethical oil. The world needs Canadian oil. Let Wealthcore Supplies help you make that happen. All right. Our special guest today on the Wealthcore Supplies CAODC podcast is Grant Strem, Chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. Mr. Strem spent a number of years working within the upstream oil and gas sector before moving into reserves evaluation and banking. His general interest in science and space propulsion systems led him towards a physics-heavy understanding of extreme oxidation processes. Mr. Strem has a Bachelor of Science in Geology from the University of Calgary and a Master's of Science in Geology and Geophysics with a specialization in reservoir characterization, characterization also from the University of Calgary. Grant, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to getting into this conversation. I don't know a ton about hydrogen, so in researching uh, getting ready for this interview, some of the facts about this is about hydrogen is just blows me away. So I'm going to get into a few of these. Hydrogen is the simplest element containing only one proton and one electron, and it doesn't occur naturally in in Not, nature. Well, in, in nature on Earth, it's always attached to something because it's very reactive. Um, examples are hydrocarbons and water, H2O. Interesting. So despite being the most plentiful element in the universe, it doesn't occur naturally. It's only combined with uh, other elements. And I was looking at this quote from Harlan Ellison. Now, was he a, does that ring a bell? It doesn't, you? not for me. Oh, okay, well, he said stupidity is the other most plentiful element <laughs> in the universe. So I thought that That's, was kind of funny. Yeah has the highest uh, energy content of any common fuel by weight but lowest energy content by volume yes it's incredibly um well you've seen a helium balloon a hydrogen balloon will float even harder than a helium balloon its density is the, the the least of all gases okay considered a secondary source of energy or an energy carrier like electricity Yes, it's been used for some time in certain applications, which are starting to go mainstream, uh, including transportation fuel, and it, yeah, it carries a lot of energy by mass. So if you want have an aircraft, for example, it's a lot less weight to carry in the air, aircraft with you than a whole bunch of carbon molecules, carbon atoms. Now, this last one, I didn't realize, I always thought the kerosene was rocket fuel, but hydrogen is used to power spacecraft you can use kerosene as well okay. in fact it's it's probably more widely used today i know the spacex rockets are using it today the next gen uses methane and uh, there are some out there that use hydrogen 
mostly because of the weight advantages. However, there's a trade-off with mass advantage of your tank. Uh, you need a bigger tank to hold the same energy of uh, hydrogen versus a more dense propellant. Gotcha. Well, the last fact I'll read here, and this is one I thought was really cool, is that on the space shuttle, with hydrogen fuel cells, they're, number one, primarily used to burn hydrogen to power the electrical components, but then they use the uh, waste, quote-unquote waste, which is pure water, for the crew's drinking water. I don't know. Yeah, hydrogen fuel cells. I, I'm not certain of this, but I think they were developed by NASA for the space program and have made their way... Uh, well, now now you can buy cars and now pickup trucks that run on hydrogen. No, it's really impressive. Um, in this day and age, we were talking uh, before we got recording here about uh, emissions and, and cleaner fuel sources, and I don't know that there's a cleaner burning uh, fuel than hydrogen if what you're getting is pure water out of, uh, of uh, the emissions. Exactly. Unquote. Yeah, I'm still waiting for one of these... Uh, hydrogen car places to add a water gun but uh, so far there's just a dump button on the back of the Toyota Mirai for example a dump button okay good so I guess to get going what have the traditional barriers to hydrogen becoming a more prevalent fuel source being uh, in large part it was it was the cost of hydrogen and today that remains and that's that's the change that's happening uh, over the last 20 years there's been dramatic improvements in both storage tanks and also in the cost of fu the fuel cells themselves. The main changes in the tanks is they are now using very strong carbon fiber overwrapped pressure vessels, which are much lighter and stronger and last longer than the metal tanks that they used to use 20 years ago when hydrogen was, was more, uh, I think it, I guess it was starting to get popular and people were talking about the hydrogen highway or the hydrogen economy and it never materialized because the technology wasn't quite there and definitely the cost of hydrogen was not there yet. Mm. Um, the big improvement for fuel cells is actually the use of platinum has gone down uh, dramatically so they can make them way cheaper and way smaller. So now that all the technologies are in place, the, the one thing people are looking around at is how do we make hydrogen super, super cheap? And that's where proton comes in. What are the most common production methods for hydrogen? By far, the most common is a process called steam methane reforming, where people buy natural gas, burn it. Uh, they use some of that heat to turn water into high temperature steam, combine the two, and they actually harvest most of the hydrogen off of this hot steam. So H2O, you get the H2 out of there. Um, ours is a similar process. We do steam reforming in the ground using unswept oil as the fuel. So you still need oil fields, you still need rigs, you still need basically all the setups and uh, infrastructure you have for oil and gas only repurposed into this new clean energy direction. I'll, I'll touch on that more later. The other common way to do it, uh, well, you have to add a lot of energy to separate hydrogen off of a water molecule and steam reforming reactions are one way. And another common way, which is about 5% of the world supply is called electrolysis, where you essentially electrocute water until you break the bonds apart and get hydrogen out. So costs, uh, what about emissions in terms of production? Well, production emissions, the way it's done currently with steam methane reforming, there's a lot of carbon dioxide emissions. And of course there's carbon taxes and 
quite a strong dislike in the Western world of, of carbon dioxide. So um, the best way is to just leave the carbon in the ground. So that's what our process does. We have downhole hydrogen filters where all these reactions can happen down there. You actually are making CO2 in the ground, but it all just stays there. Kind of like carbon sequestration or carbon capture and storage, only you never bring it to surface in the first place. How effective do you think that stuff is at uh, sequestration, those processes, and actually putting it back into the ground? It's very effective. It's not very cost effective that I've seen so far. And other experts can weigh in on this probably better than I have. But uh, in the last 20 years, there's been billions of dollars put towards this. And there are projects all over the world that have been injecting CO2. And the best place to inject CO2 and expect it to stay there is within a geological seal that's proven itself for millions of years by holding it in a column of oil and gas. So you know if it's been holding in a buoyant fluid for millions of years, odds are it's going to stay there. Okay. So as far as uh, hydrogen fuel cells go, can you explain a little bit about the technology behind that and um, some of the barriers, I guess, for it becoming, I mean, we, we touched on that a little bit, but uh, what's the direction moving forward for hydrogen fuel cells or where do we currently sit? Well, I won't go into the exact specifics, but basically hydrogen uh, combines with oxygen. And you said it's earlier that it's a proton and an electron. If you can take that electron and use it to propel your car and take that hydrogen, combine it with oxygen from the air to make water, um, that that's essentially how it works. So I guess I did get into it. But <laughs> anyway, um, where it's going and the trends, uh, all these early cars that came out for uh, electric cars, they were all pretty lame. Like, um, nobody really wanted one because they all sucked. And then I think Tesla came along and, and fixed some of the perception issue. And that's actually been just bugging me to no end about hydrogen cars. They, um, to me, seemed undesirable until this new announcement from Nikola Motor Company with that 900 horsepower pickup truck. And I hope to see lots of competitors show up on the scene, but you can get long range, heavy haul, uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Uh, they're using them for forklifts all over the place and big rig trucks for hauling beer and stuff like that. So there's no reason you can't have a really good pickup truck that runs on hydrogen as well. Are they physically, are they large? Um, the I fuel mean, cells? Yeah. Yeah, the, the systems are similar to a diesel tank, a little bit bigger. There's no engine, right? So. Usually they stick the fuel cell under the hood and the tank where tanks normally go. Yep. Um, but you, there can be lots of different designs and how it's done. A lot of the buses put the hydrogen tanks in the roof for some reason. I don't know why. Hmm. So the weight mustn't be an issue then if it's going up high like that. Exactly. They're very lightweight. Hmm. Okay. As far as the market for hydrogen goes, what does it look like? How much is being produced today? Where is it most commonly used? Well, uh, most people in oil and gas <laughs> upstream are, are kind of unfamiliar with it, but there's actually a huge existing market for hydrogen and about half of it goes for making, upgrading oil and gas at refineries and upgraders. So there's worldwide about $165 billion US of hydrogen uh, revenue. And most, yeah, like I say, slightly over half of that goes to the oil and gas industry for taking crude oil and turning it into diesel and things like that. The rest is almost all, all used up in making fertilizer. 
So those are the big uh, historic uses, but now that we can make hydrogen much cheaper than natural gas, I think it's gonna be very popular to just put it through turbines and make electricity, put it through pipelines, and, and you know, initially that'll be um, adding, mixing in up to perhaps 10 or 20% hydrogen within existing natural gas streams. And then the next step beyond that is gonna be pure hydrogen. So there are communities already in Europe. Um, there's plans for one in Alberta, I heard, that run just on hydrogen. So all your appliances in your house burn hydrogen instead of methane. Wow. Has the... Can you give us a bit of a background on the, on the cost curve from a production side? Like, what has the, pr the price been historically and how has that come down over the years or is that... Yeah. Historically, hydrogen has cost, at the best steam methane reformers in the world, roughly 50% of the natural gas cost that drives them. Uh, sorry, roughly twice the cost. Yeah, so you end up with uh, thermal losses and stuff in that, during that conversion. And you end up with uh, a product, the hydrogen, that's um, on a per joule of energy basis more expensive. Now that you can have free fuel and use the ground as your reaction vessel, you can, you know, the cost structure is dramatically lower. So historically, steam, steam reforming, steam methane reforming has uh, approached about $1 per kilogram. Uh, we're, talk, we're targeting 10 cents per kilogram. And uh, just to give you an idea of price parity with diesel in the U.S., that's $4 per kilogram. So it's already, they're doing solar to electrolysis cheaper than diesel today. And solar to electrolysis has a stigma of being the expensive way to make hydrogen, but it's already cheaper than diesel. Little known fact is that 90% of Alberta's heavy oil and bitumen gets converted to diesel on the Gulf Coast. So now that companies like Nikola Motor Company have order lists longer than they can fill, um, I think there's going to be an enormous demand destruction for heavy oil and oil sands in Canada. So it leaves us going, wondering, What's next? How do we stay relevant? How do we feed our families? How do we make a buck? And we have these huge resources. We just have to repurpose them as clean energy. And that's how I think that Alberta and Western Canada can become an energy superpower, supplying enormous volumes of clean hydrogen to the rest of the world. It's hard to protest against a pipeline where there's no chance of a spill. <laughs> Good point. So Proton Technologies, can you give us the Coles notes, how did you guys get going? How long have you been around for? Um. Yeah, it was a simple idea, a recognition that all um, in situ combustion projects or oxidation projects where air or oxygen are injected into an oil field, all of them, that's been done more than 500 times worldwide and they all make hydrogen as one of the byproducts in the gas stream. Some have higher uh, concentrations than others and so trying to figure that out and tune it so you can actually maximize the amount of hydrogen you make and who cares about the oil that's uh, the, the oils if you view that as just the fuel to drive steam reforming reactions then uh, you don't have to worry about uh, a lot of reservoir features that you you need to worry about in an oil production perspective such as permeability so if you have uh, a very large oil field, but it's not flowing economically anymore, no problem. You can just oxidize all that oil in place and all that energy, or the overwhelming majority of it, goes towards creating hydrogen from the water that's already in the reservoir. 
So one of the questions our listeners will want to know is, uh, can you put CAODC members to work uh, getting hydrogen, extracting hydrogen? Yeah, actually. Our, our intention is to drill our first dedicated hydrogen well this summer. Sooner if we can get out before breakup. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that drilling these hydrogen wells is going to be very, very popular on a worldwide basis. And, and, you know, I live in Canada, so this is going to be the epicenter. And I forgot to mention, yeah, we started four years ago, your previous question, and we've been growing ever since. And we started with a lab demo, bought an oil field, and have been, we did a small demonstration two years ago in the field of hydrogen separation from our gases, mostly to prove that H2S wouldn't, wouldn't poison our filter. And then, uh, yeah, now we want to scale up. I'd like to be truckloading five tons a day uh, this year. And yeah, we have got Stantec working on a design, well, two designs really, that uh, one of them is about in the range of 30 tons a day hydrogen and the others are roughly 500 tons a day hydrogen. And I've made some posts on LinkedIn outlining the calculations behind that. Okay. And what, uh, with, so I saw on your website HEE, Hygienic Earth Energy. Is that, can you explain that to me? Is that a, is that a proprietary sort of... Uh... We just wanted to have a, a catchphrase that sort of represented that it's a clean source of energy from the earth. And, you know, there's geothermal, that's good too. But this wanted to, we wanted something that's distinct that people could uh, associate with our process. Can we get into the process a little bit here? Um, I've got my notes say that the wellhead becomes a multi-purpose facility or a trove. Can you give us a little bit of a, it's not just producing hydrogen, you're also getting other valuable resources out of the, uh, out of the ground. Yeah, the, the main other one is oil. So when, when you add a bunch of oxygen to an oil field, it adds a lot of thermal energy and if you have a, a viscous oil, that extra energy um, goes towards mobilizing more oil also. So, uh, for example, we're currently, our revenue stream is coming from oil, and that's what's going to be paying for our next steps on the hydrogen side. <clears throat> I think that's a, a good microcosm or a metaphor for how the whole industry will look when people start doing this to their oil fields. It really gets the production surging. Uh, of the oil while at the same time offering this new revenue stream in the form of hydrogen, which they can use on site to upgrade their oil or they can sell it to uh, you know the coal plant down the street to replace the coal fuel and different things. There's lots of uh, up and coming uses for it uh, in a very low cost hydrogen environment. Well, it's an amazing opportunity for clean energy. Um, we know that we're, we're in this world now where uh, I guess depending on your your view it's a lot of cities for instance in Canada have declared uh, climate emergency um, you know co2 and, and pollution is uh, having an impact on a lot of our energy policies it's not often that we get a bona fide scientists on the uh, wealth core supply CAODC podcast so I'm wondering if you could maybe give us your take on where we're at in terms of uh, the health of the planet and, and uh, you know a lot of people will tell you in the next 10 years if we don't get off of fossil fuels we're going to be in a real crisis. Sure. 
I, I don't often talk about uh, my views on CO2 because they're actually somewhat non-mainstream and somewhat controversial. And that's because I'm a geologist and I was a teaching assistant during my undergrad for a course called The Geological Record of Global Climate Change. And I would just like to highlight that it is terrifying. So the amount of perturbations and swings in temperature and climate that have happened long before mankind was having an effect uh, were yeah, absolutely uh, huge and dramatic. Uh, the transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene, for example, had these flip-flops in temperatures of like 10 degrees Celsius. And, you know, I guess we got, uh, that caused, was a partial cause of many extinctions, for sure, which isn't good. And if we can avoid having an impact, the precautionary principle suggests that it's a good idea to try and avoid that. Um, my, my personal bugaboo for environmental issues are air pollution, and most especially protecting threatened species and fragile ecosystems from, you know, just uh, devastating things that humans do, like just chopping down all the trees to, you know, for cooking or whatever. So uh, if we're gonna be spending trillion dollars, trillions of dollars to protect the environment, I'd like to see a lot more of that money going towards protecting um, fragile species from extinction. That's my personal view. Uh, not the representative views of Proton necessarily. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. And then uh, the other thing is that the World Health Organization says that 8 million of us humans die every year from air pollution. 8 million. And there's only 8 billion humans, roughly. So in rough numbers, that means there's a 1 in a 1,000 chance that you or me or any anyone listening to this is going to die from air pollution in any given year. Of course, if you live in Delhi or Beijing or some other places, Santiago or Tehran, the odds are probably a little higher and probably a little bit lower if you live in Banff or Nunavut. But, uh, you know, it's still um, a lot of small particles are coming out of, of our hydro hydrocarbon combustion and going through the blood-brain barrier and causing dementia and, and uh, all sorts of chronic cancers and problems and um, you know deaths by air pollution are horrible expensive deaths and they they affect people around them much more than tragic accidents um, I, I think that the the drag of, of productivity and on the economic burden of, of all these deaths all on an ongoing basis is underrepresented in uh, this discussion so for that alone, like if there was, that works out to two and a half people per second dying from air pollution. And I think if there was a terrorist group that, that was that good at killing people, we would spend trillions of dollars trying to stop it. And it's silly to me that we have much lower cost options for uh, not causing all those deaths. And we're just doing things the same way we did largely a hundred years ago. And uh, times have changed. We're, we're educated now on these issues, and I do think it's, it's time to make that change. Not because everybody has warm feelings about it, but because everyone wants to save a buck. So I'd rather fill up my pickup truck with five bucks of hydrogen than 120 bucks of diesel. And I think a lot of other people would too, especially if it's a cool pickup truck with 900 horsepower. So, you know, <laughs> the transition will happen based on economics, not because of, uh, environmental reasons. Um, I, I sometimes use the analogy of the transition from whale oil to kerosene. 
it didn't happen because everyone loved whales. It happened because people would go to the store to buy lamp oil and see that kerosene was a small fraction of the cost of whale oil and grab that. So same thing will happen with hydrogen. Well, it's exciting technology um, and especially exciting for those of us in the oil and gas industry because it means that you know, we're going to be able to stay in, in business as things change. Uh, I guess, can you give us a bit of a look into the crystal ball a bit and, and give us what your thoughts are in terms of, well, I mean, what's next, I guess, for Proton? You talked a little bit about rapid production up, but uh, what do you see happening uh, from that perspective? And then just an overall, um, because I guess as Canadians, you know, we're... We have a different perspective on, on energy consumption than most people on the planet. Um, so as a large group of, of people are looking to, to move towards a standard of living that is similar to ours, their energy demands are going to change. Um, what do you see happening with the future of energy as we do transition? And, and uh, you know, where does that leave us in terms of uh, the primary sources? Sure. Yeah. Well, I see. So first off, energy is definitely very good for people. And if you can do it in in least harmful ways, that's even better. Um, I applaud Bill Gates for buying a hydrogen yacht instead of a diesel yacht. And I think that, uh, you know, these types of things are going to get much, much more commonplace. Um, where is it all going to come from? It's going to come from the resources we have. For example, here in Alberta, we have over two trillion barrels of oil. That is a lot of fuel for driving steam reforming reactions. The amount of hydrogen we can take from that while leaving all the other stuff that we don't want in place in the ground, it's, it's actually hard to fathom. I've got some calculations on LinkedIn about that as well. Um, but you know, just it's, it's truly, truly staggering how much energy we can be producing as clean energy from these oil fields. So my belief is that after we start truckloading hydrogen in Saskatchewan, uh, license agreements are going to start selling like hotcakes where lots of other projects are built, where people are building oxygen plants and converting their oil fields to uh, reactors that are already full of fuel for making hydrogen. And so that's going to revitalize our communities. It's going to revitalize you know, the, the, the infrastructure that we've just spent 50 years or more building. Uh, can get leveraged in a new clean direction. So people are back to work, towns are back to work, you know, we'll need pipe fitters and drillers and, all, you know, the, the skill sets that we have are what is required for this. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We've been uh, talking with Grant Strem, Chairman and CEO of Proton Technologies. Where can our listeners learn more about Proton Technologies? Thanks, John. Well, we have... Uh, website www.proton.energy and uh, if you're curious to to send an email inquiry it's info at proton.energy and we'd be happy to respond to you so thanks for having me it's been uh, fun to come chat about hydrogen all right well thank you very much for joining us for another weld course supplies caodc podcast this should be a very interesting year in Canadian oil and gas, uh, and we are looking forward to bringing in some great guests in the upcoming months. So if you've got any suggestions for us, please let us know. You can send us a note to communications at caodc.ca.
And by the way, if you're looking uh, for some excellent coverage of the Wet'suwet'en protests, I would really encourage you to check out either Resource Works or Stuart Muir. Uh, Stuart is the head of Resource Works, and they're actually on site doing some interviews with protesters and supporters. And I think his coverage, in my mind anyway, is about as accurate a portrayal as uh, you can find about what's happening out there. So the uh, Stuart's handle on Twitter is at SJMuir, at S-J-M-U-I-R. And Resource Works handle is at Resource underscore Works. Would also like to thank Grant Strem, Chairman and CEO of Proton Technology, for joining us in the CAODC studios. It was great to hear what Grant sees as the future for oil and gas and the energy transition, quote unquote, that is talked about so often. And you know, when I hear the word transition used, it always it always seems to me that it's like this pejorative, or not necessarily pejorative, but it's like we're going to be phasing it out. The end of the transition means that oil and gas is gone. And it, for, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, oil and gas, fossil fuels, are an incredible source of affordable, reliable energy. They always have been. They have improved human life dramatically. And from an emissions perspective, we have done nothing but lower emissions. And we continue to drive towards cleaner solutions on all sides, from production to consumption. So, especially when you listen to somebody like Grant talk about emissions-free fossil fuel, essentially, in the form of hydrogen. And when you hear that, you realize what the potential is. And our record, our track record of innovation, wouldn't give you any reason to think that it couldn't happen. I mean, we've done amazing things in a short period of time with oil and gas. And the really exciting thing is that Canada has led the way the entire time. So exciting stuff from Grant. Thank you very much for coming in. If you want more information, I believe their website is proton.energy.com. So thanks again for listening to the Wildcore Supply CAODC podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a like or share. I believe we will be up on iTunes shortly. Our technicians are telling us that, so tell all your friends who have iPhones to look us up. We'll be back again in March with another great episode. And until then, keep them turning to the right.